0: That yeah. is so surprising and it's so, it's a ripple effect too. Like there's no healthcare standards on how different healthcare yep. properties or um, clinics and stuff are trying to reduce their emissions or how they can or what they're doing, like in terms of incineration and waste management, like just the lack of standards was so surprising to me going into this, all of this research.
1: Well, I think it honestly, I mean, not to get too much into history here, but I think it, and one well, philosophical, philosophical philosophy um but i, mean, I think it, i think it all really goes back to the whole kind of invention of the the neoliberal era here so right. back in like 1970s when we had this we had this conversation we had Milton Friedman go up and say you know the only social purpose of a firm is to make money right mm-hmm. there's no other social purpose of a the firm there's nothing else right so It's, well, why would you measure anything else? You just need to measure how much money you're making. Call it a day. Right. Right? So then you have all of our socioeconomic systems based on that fact, Mm -hmm. which, again, probably not a good idea. But we're here. Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, there's actually – there is – I mean, there is task forces and things like that with, like, different um, regulators like the SEC in the United States that are looking at these things and saying – what's our what's the climate risk how do companies measure that how do we get them to measure that kind of stuff so there is kind of talk about this but you know things move very slowly mm-hmm. let alone the fact that there's whatever 200 or whatever countries and nations and things like that and states around the world so it's a very involved process i mean you think about you know ipcc reports every single line of those is vetted by every single state so it's like you have to get, you know, 200 various organizations and countries and states all this to agree on that, let alone think about how you're going to regulate them. I mean, you know, IPC has no regulatory power.
2: Mm-hmm. How
1: are you going to regulate regulate this kind of stuff, right? So, yes, that's a very interesting part of the whole emission measuring and all that kind of stuff. Um, but going back, let's kind of take this more to the adaptation side, what yeah. I focus on here. And there's really there's three pillars, and these are these are adapted um, from a paper by Goldstein, Turner, Gladstone, and Hole in 2019. The the first is soft based adaptations. So for organizations, this is things like insurance, um, knowledge generations, and you have most organizations doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of this, in my experience and my understanding, is it's mostly reactive
2: right. and by force. Okay. So you're
1: seeing, you're seeing insurance companies saying, you know, look, you can no longer operate in this area, right? You're seeing investors come in and say, what are you guys doing? Like putting, like you're, you're putting pollutants out into the river. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Like you're right. Like it's, it's things like that, right? maybe mm-hmm. not those specific questions, but they're really asking those tough questions and companies are saying, oh yeah, I guess we have to start thinking about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Um, I had, a, I mean, I had an energy company and, um, <coughs> Uh, a renewable energy company, I should say. And they, you know, so much of their talk has been with insurance companies because insurance companies are coming out and saying, you can no longer operate in this region because in 10 years, it's 10, 20 years, you're not going to be able to. Mm-hmm. So stop putting money into it. Okay. I mean, I think I think a great example of this, I mean, is the whole, um, what is it, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which I mean, again, right. political question, we can debate whether pipelines are good or bad or whether they're necessary or not. But I mean, there's so many insurance companies that have backed out of that project in the last, you know, two years just because of the really the the realizing and, and, you know, the reality of climate change. And it's like they don't want to be involved in that project anymore, not only because, you know, they're, you know, the social aspects are bad about it, but they can't make any money or they're going to lose money mm-hmm. on the project. Right. So that's really those those soft based adaptations. So insurance, knowledge generation for the most part. OK. Um, how are those, you know, they're saying they got to have somebody in their company that knows about these kinds of things, basically. Second up is hard based ad- adaptations or approaches. And those are really those like those capital investments, those built structures, engineering your infrastructure. So building your, your factories and your production facilities and your distribution centers and your warehouses to really higher requirements than what laws or bylaws or whatever we're calling for. So it's more like what does nature or climate change call for versus what are our engineering standards? Right. Um, I mean, they're all meeting the engineering standards, but then, you know, I was, I was talking to an agriculture company and an executive there and it's like, all of their facilities can run completely separate from every, you know, type of modern infrastructure that the government provides. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really, you know, it relies on it for normal operations. You know, it relies on utility, it relies on water and electricity and all that kind of stuff. But if that all goes down to a weather storm. I mean, they can have everybody that's working there. They have cots, they have beds, they have a full kitchen, they have generators, everything, waste management, all set up so that those people can live there Mm -hmm. for essentially, I think it was like two weeks. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of that kind of like that that prepper attitude, which again, another maybe problem or whatnot, but it's like, yeah, they're preparing for that facility to be cut off from the rest of the world. right? And it's, you know, you say it like that and it's like, holy, and it's like a lot of companies aren't doing that kind of stuff, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So that's really those hard base adaptations. So that's your actual like investments into saying, okay, we need to move our yeah. distribution center to somewhere else because this area is sitting on a swamp that's going to be in the ground three inches from five years from now or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right?
0: Does that also now, include like closer. changing energy sources and things like that? Like, would that be considered a yes. hard adaptation? Okay.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I mean that energy sources are a very interesting one because you have a lot of these utility companies that basically have monopolies in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, I mean, here in Saskatchewan we have Sask power and Sask energy that hold the right to basically do energy and electricity everywhere. Right. In, you know, in Ontario of hydro. Right. So mm-hmm. it, um, it's an interesting shift. There's actually a little bit in my, in my research there. I mean, I had, again, one of the agriculture companies and it's like, you know, Saskatchewan and Alberta are our main focus for renewable energy investments. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you say that and it's like, oh, that's fantastic. But it's actually like, no, it's very bad because our electricity mixes are very heavily polluting. And Mm -hmm. they're sitting there and they're saying 90% of our emissions from our, you know, those are, I think those are really scope two emissions. I'm trying to think the whole classification here. I have it in my notes somewhere. But it's like those scope two emissions from our electricity sources, our energy sources, Mm
2: -hmm. you know,
1: all those emissions are coming from Saskatchewan, Alberta. So we have to take the lead on this and invest in these kinds of things. But- Even, you know, a lot of those executives that I admit, you know, you think about these kinds of people and they're, you know, traditionally very, um, how do I want to say it politely, very resistant to change, right? Very conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's like, we literally have to do this ourselves because the governments aren't helping. But you get into that question of, I mean, even one of the executives asked me, he's like, how do you, like, how do I as a company go in and say, I'm going to do this all on my own? Like, you can't. You have to have those those societal level interventions those government interventions mm-hmm. to create the the society we want it's i laugh at people that are, are kind of like oh the market's everything and i'm like yeah but the market is only the market because of the government how it's set up mm-hmm. so you 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 need those those things right so
2: yeah yes,
1: energy electricity definitely falls into that that hard base approaches if it's um actually investments in those kinds of things if it's okay. just kind of like they're you know generating you know they're they're trying to think about how their electricity mixes are and and all that kind of stuff and, and maybe what they need to do or if they are in a place where there's different providers, how they can switch on a moment's notice if they need to. Mm-hmm. that would be more soft based adaptations okay but yes, um and then again, you get into the question here what's a mitigation? what is what's an adaptation <laughs> yeah. because a mitigation would also reduce the the emissions, right? Yeah. So those are more almost mitigations, but, if they are making the company more resilient to future shocks, like say not being able to get um, natural gas or methane from their their pipelines, well, then having solar panels or a wind farm available that's a resiliency investment. That's an adaptation. Mm, right. So it, it, again, fits very. They're very interchangeable because yeah. they fit in both of those categories.
0: Yeah. When I think about like adaptation versus when you were first explaining the definitions, I was thinking about okay, like a bike would be a mitigation, like buying a bike so that you reduce. Have a have it, like going out with your cars. You have a bike, right. but then it would also kind of be an adaptation for now. You start biking more. Is that kind of a correct um, definition of the two? With that example, I mean, I'm more of a,
1: I'm, I'm you're you're on the right track. I'm more of a systems thinker, so I would say you're right for mitigation. Okay, so absolutely, it's re, it's reducing the, you know, the emissions you're putting out in the air.
2: Yes, but
1: in terms of adaptation, it's also doing for you the fact that I mean, in a lot of cities, I mean, cars just geometrically don't make sense. Mm-hmm. right they, there's too many of them in such a smaller space and right they're confined right and that's why you get you get traffic that's why you get bumper to bumper you know yes. it's, everybody's at a standstill in a bike i mean it's an adaptation because you can whiz through and keep going you just yeah. need a small little space you're not reliant on gasoline you're basically reliant on all the calories you can put in your body to power yourself mm-hmm. so in that sense it is an adaptation too so you are on the right track like that's exactly what it is mm-hmm. and i mean that's a great way to think about it
0: okay cool Okay, sorry. Continue. Um, I yeah, that. no, absolutely. <laughs>
1: it's all good. So, so third. So, those are the so soft based adaptations, hard based adaptations, um, and then the third one is is really unique and interesting because there's not a whole lot of organizations out there that do the third one. But that's ecosystem based approaches or adaptations. Okay. So that's really your sustainable management, your your conservation, your restoration of ecosystems. You know, there's oh, there's some talk now because it's very difficult to say to to. Um, to agriculture producers, to farmers, to say, oh, reduce your emissions, right? I mean, yeah. we know that food production is a very big source of our emissions mm-hmm. right now. But what a lot of these places can actually do is, I mean, in you, again, I, I have to kind of think about how I'm going to explain this because I'm in Saskatchewan, right? Saskatchewan over it. I'm like, oh, we think about this all day long. This is <laughs> our news every single day. But you you think about this and what you can actually do is you can kind of like, basically, if I explain this, you can take your, take your land, you can make it into four quadrants, right? Yeah. And every year, you basically don't plant anything on one of the quadrants. And what that allows is that allows that quadrant of your land to restore itself over the year. That allows animals to graze it and, and not, you don't know, have to deal with horrible pesticides that people put on it or, mm-hmm. or fertilizers that people put on it. So that allows for, you know, that year for the restoration and that that really the ecosystem-based approaches. And what that actually allows for is because you're allowing that land to restore and, and rejuvenate over that year, it's actually better because yeah. it actually like naturally fertilizes the land and the mm-hmm. soil. If all works out, I mean, this is a very very simplistic example, but what it would actually call for then would be using less fertilizers, which is less yeah. nitrogen, which is less emissions and all that kind of stuff, right? Less so, pesticides. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we think about it just in general, like sticking with that the the fertilizers aspects for emit, right? Like Saskatchewan, Alberta, I mean, we have nutrient here. I mean, huge, huge worldwide producer of lots and lots of fertilizers. Mm-hmm. But fertilizer, both in, you know, Canada, United States and over in Europe and everything where it's produced heavily, it's a very energy intensive process with a lot and a lot of natural gas. Mm-hmm. Or methane. I like I like methane gas a lot better because it clearly because there's something nearly natural about it. It's it's methane, right? Mm-hmm. So it's I mean it, I guess it is natural, but it's natural has a very positive connotation. It's you know yeah. it's kind of bad for the environment. Yes, um, bad for your homes too. I really never understand why we have stoves putting methane into the air. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> side note. Um, so fertilizer production is a very energy intensive process that calls for a lot of this methane gas or natural gas and what we what we're seeing right now and over the last few months is natural gas is a commodity it's been so high in um cost so high in price though the worldwide price of it has gone up like extremely high relative to what it was a year ago or two years ago because of various things like geopolitical factors mm-hmm. with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and all that kind of stuff yeah. that it's now unprofitable for fertilizer companies to create fertilizer which then will drop down to a lot of less wealthy nations and say, you know, we can't supply you fertilizer at this cost, which means less food production and all that kind of stuff. Right. So it's almost, you know, all again, all this is related, but it'll kind of force us, I guess, to look at different approaches, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, But back to kind of adaptation and climate change and supply chains, most companies, I would say, are aiming for those soft adaptation, um, yeah. that insurance, that, that knowledge generation but there's, I mean, in a lot of the research, I mean, a fifth of the companies didn't disclose any adaptation approaches, right? So right. some of them might be doing it and not saying anything, but some of them might just be saying, "Oh, we don't care, right? Like until yeah. somebody forces us to do it, we don't care." Yeah. Um, and then you have some organizations, I would say. So it's probably about eighty percent of the organizations are doing soft, soft, soft adaptation. And then of that eighty percent, you know. 50 to 60% of that is doing um, some hard-based adaptations. Okay. So that's, you know, your facility investments, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then you have very, very few doing ecosystem-based adaptations. You know, again, maybe some agriculture companies or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, just in general, excuse me, I think a key question comes down here is, and this is noted in a lot of the research, is, you know, whether these strategies and projects on climate change, whether these are truly adaptation Or if they're simply, you know, just examples of business as usual or some greenwashing there, right? So making those those unwarranted or overblown claims of sustainability in an attempt to gain or maintain that market share. So it's like, is this for public relations and advertising and propaganda or is this actual improvements that are a net benefit to society? So, again, this comes back to the point of how do we measure all of this?
0: Yeah wow, <laughs> it's just a whole thing. Just a, it's whole, a whole cycle. Thing, right? That's crazy. Whole,
1: everything's connected, yes. interdependent. I mean, this is, this is what my honors research focused on with a look at like those companies critical to Saskatchewan society. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, even smaller things, right. You have companies, those hard, hard adaptations and you have companies that operate in, in forested areas. And, you know, three years ago, they did fifty foot fire barriers. So they you know like chop down the trees fifty feet around their whole, all their facilities, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure the fire the forest fires didn't jump into their facilities and and you know start bad things on fire. Yeah. But you know now that's three hundred feet, so you're you know it's you know six hundred percent greater, and it's like, holy moly, like that doesn't sound like you know fifty feet to three hundred feet or whatever, yeah. but it's like they have to do this six hundred percent more just because of the fact that climate change is real and it's very much here now and yeah. it's causing these kinds of things and it's, it's devastating. Right. Mm-hmm. So but yes, everything is interconnected, interrelated. And it's very difficult to split them apart. Like you can't split apart what companies are doing on climate change in their, um whether it's, in, you know, supply chains or whatever, but you can't split apart what they're doing on climate change from what they've done in the past. Yeah. And what the, you know, their lobbying efforts in the past and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's what makes it like that super wicked problem, right? So you have these, these problems that are, are very hard to deal with, they have a lot of variables. But then so that's a wicked problem. And then you the super part of that is the fact that a lot of the companies that are promising these solutions are the ones responsible for the problem in the first place. Right. So it's, you have to really, and again, right where we are right now in our society, companies and organizations are their big institutional elements of our society and how it's set up. So we have to work with them. Mm-hmm. But it's like, What level of responsibility do they take? Who makes them take that responsibility? And things like that, right? Like, I don't think we can just sit here and say, oh, yeah, you know, everything's going to be great. No, like, we have to publicly force a lot of these organizations, governments, too, like, on all this kinds of stuff, right? So, um, yes, that is a very broad, but also very specific Mm -hmm. overview of my research, I guess.
0: Wow. And so I kind of, you mentioned this idea of greenwashing, and I kind of want to talk about this a bit with... an example of the whole straw phenomenon uh, with straws being removed from fast food places, coffee shops, pretty much restaurants, pretty much everywhere. And yes, I guess I, I want to just talk about how maybe that was a source of greenwashing. Maybe it wasn't, I'm not sure because I mean, they did, for example, like Starbucks, the company, I think was like one of the first people to get rid of straws and they were really adamant that, it was helping the ocean, helping reduce plastic. Uh, we don't need these things. And don't get me wrong, I completely agree with why would we create unnecessary things out of right. plastic that like we don't need, really. So I was on board with that. But then, I don't know, then you see the new cups that they're making to uh, overcome the fact that there's no straws. And it looks like you need more plastic to make those. Right. So it's just... And so I just don't know if, and and I feel like I've seen some stuff online where it's like that whole movement was to kind of distract away from this idea um, of what's really going on in the ocean and the really, the things that are polluting it the most and um, making it the most irreversible, I guess. And like some stuff like fishing and all the emissions from fishing um, and the pollution from that. So yeah, I just feel like that was a whole movement that it was really hard to grasp. Like I wanted to be on board with it, yeah, but it absolutely. was just hard.
1: Absolutely, and I mean, there's like so. There's a lot here. So starting with this kind of this straw phenomenon, I think you're right. I think it's you know I think it does have an impact, or at least we want it to have an mm-hmm. impact. Um, I haven't seen any actual study of whether or not it has. Yeah. The there has been one comparison. I wish again. I wish I had it on me here, but there was a comparison with um, single use plastic bags and like reusable bags that you use, mm-hmm. and I think it was something like. This was a few years ago now, so maybe when they were using probably plastics to create the reusable bags, um, it was like you had to use the reusable bag something like ten thousand times in order to make up for the one single use plastic bag that you reduced. Wow! So it's like it's it's an it's a very ridiculous proposition, yes, right? Yeah. Um. And so that's the thing. I mean that that really comes back to like how do we account for these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Is this greenwashing? Um. You know. I think we we understand. I mean, in a broad sense, you know, we know plastics are bad, mm-hmm. but. We also know that, I mean, you know, you look in healthcare, I mean, you have to have single use plastics for some things, right? You can make them more renewable, but it's, it's, that's what comes down to the question, right? So there's, there's little things. I mean, I hate to be the kind of person that like, you know, every little bit helps. But I mean, you think about it, even if you're buying Coca Cola, right? Mm -hmm. You have, or just let's just say cola. Let's not get the branding endorsements <laughs> here. If you're buying cola. Yeah. Um, you if you're buying a plastic bottle of cola, well, that's all like you're using plastic. Some of it might be recycled, but you're using plastic. There yeah. is some new plastic in there. But if you're using an aluminum can, well, pretty much all that aluminum can, if not all of it, is being reused and put into another aluminum can. Like aluminum, the the whole supply chain for aluminum. Is very very. I mean, it's energy intensive again, like fertilizer, mm-hmm. but it's very very um, uh, like reused, yeah. Because like I mean, you thought like if you think about the beginning days of the pandemic, even right now, there was issues of getting different types. Like you know, you had your typical, like again, you had your Coca Cola, you had your Pepsi's, all the regular kinds of colas in stock,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: anything special like cherry cola or whatever, you didn't. Yeah, and a lot of the reason there was simply because companies couldn't get the aluminum because people were keeping their aluminum cans at home because they couldn't have anywhere to take them back for recycling because they were closed because of the pandemic. Wow. So it really, like, you think about that, and it's like, yeah, like, that was the issue is companies literally couldn't get these aluminum cans Mm -hmm. because nobody was returning their aluminum cans. It's a a fascinating thing because it's kind of like one of the OG, like, we did a really good job here. Let's keep going with this. Um, And then we can talk about reducing the energy mix of the aluminum process, things like that. But... Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this does come down to kind of that greenwashing and that like that carbon footprint that I despise so much. Um, (laughs) Why do you hate that word? I I just so it was really initially promoted as a public relations and marketing tool by like British Petroleum, like BP, the oil company, right? So it was really it was really used to convince people of individual responsibility for Mm. you know the climate crisis rather than companies owning up to responsibility for some of these issues. So like, I mean, there's also a, there's a great, you know, advertising. um, Oh, I forget who, who put it out. It was sponsored very much so by petrochemical companies and plastic companies and all that kind of stuff on having somebody go up and they're picking up their plastics from the road and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, but we don't talk about how, you know, these plastics are made because they don't disintegrate anywhere over your lifetime, over hundreds of lifetimes, right? They sit there in the atmosphere So there's all this kinds of stuff. And, yeah, the the carbon footprint, I mean, it's kind of a – everybody recognizes what it means, you know, measuring the carbon emissions of something. Um, But it really was about trying to change the responsibility from the company to the individual responsibility. And you see that a lot these days where it's like, oh, well, it's not the oil company's fault that everybody needs to drive a car or whatnot. And it's like, no, you're right. There is other issues here. Like, there's the design of our cities. There's people liking to sit and drive, people liking cars, all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. right? But to say that they're completely innocent is just like it's a demand problem. Yeah. Well, no, because they also have created some of the supply. They've marketed this to us. They've marketed this lifestyle and all that kind of stuff, right? So mm-hmm. it's they've they've lobbied for you know lax regulations around the world and you know have done some devastating things to many, many communities. Um and it's just like no, it's not just a demand problem. There is some guilt here yeah. from all these fossil fuel companies and all all these other companies that are doing these heinous things around the world. Mm-hmm. Um you know, when you think about it, there's there's tons of greenwashing, right? So maybe this comes into play with this this uh the strophenom a little a little bit, but you you know, you have a lot of these energy companies is what they like to deem themselves nowadays they're the world's energy companies these oil companies essentially mm-hmm. you know 90 99 or you know, 95% of the the advertising they do is for the renewable energy efforts right i think and a great example, right. I think, is BP. BP has a great one on. They're using L J as a new energy source, or Shell is investing in solar energy and all that. Mm-hmm. Other than you look at like their, you know, you look at their financials, and it's like you know one percent or one percent of one percent of their new investment is dedicated towards renewables, <laughs> yeah. right? So yes. you know, we know it had a great report the other day on the Guardian talking about how fossil fuel companies are basically investing. I think it's something like over hundred million dollars a day to exploit new oil fields that we know will push us over, you know, the carbon budget that we have under the IPC uh, reports. So it's, again, some of that kind of stuff where it's like, yeah, you know, reducing the amount of single-use plastics you use is probably good. It's -hmm. probably good if I just, you know, you know, I bike everywhere. So I have my bike, my um, backpacks, I have my pannier bags. And it's like, yeah, if I take those, I mean, I have them on my bike anyways. I go to the grocery store, load those up instead of using single-use plastics. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's probably a net win, Yeah. But purposely creating new, like thicker plastic bags to replace single-use plastic bags, it's a it's a tough sell, I think, for anybody that can think through that logically. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this all comes back to how do we measure this kind of stuff? Yeah, and you know, we have I think there's some there's a there's a uh, international nonprofit called the Carbon Data Project. And it does some of this stuff. So it's companies can submit plans and be evaluated and given a a letter um, score on how they're doing on, you know, adaptation, mitigation, reducing emissions, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's all voluntary. Yeah. Right. So and I mean, if you don't submit, you get an automatic effort, whatever. But it's like, oh, who's I mean, who's who's checking? Who's going to the who's checking? Yeah. Who, Who cares? Yeah. Right. There's so much to worry about. I mean, partly because of these issues, but it's like there's. There, I don't think there's really a nation or like a stock exchange or a market that's really requiring companies to put forth their risks due to climate change or account for their emissions, yeah. right? And it's it's also difficult because you have, I mentioned it earlier, but you have like those first, second, third scope emissions, which refers to like how those emissions are made and calculated by an organization, right? So
2: mm-hmm.
1: scope one is like the direct emissions from an organization. So if they're driving their vehicle around, that's a, uh, an emission. If their process creates some kind of carbon emissions or methane emissions or whatever, that's scope one. Mm-hmm. Then scope two is more like their emissions from their electricity or energy usage required for the company to operate, right? So if your factories require a lot of natural gas, well, you got to account for the emissions from the natural gas. Mm-hmm. But then where it gets very difficult is scope three, and that refers to all those other emissions that are involved in the supply chain. So from that's right from the suppliers to a company, right down to the consumers or consumer of our projects.
2: Mm -hmm. of a product
1: and that's very very difficult to measure right like Mm -hmm. the scope three could involve everything from all your transportation from your supplier and all their production processes all the way down to are you including whether or not the consumers drive to a store to go pick up what you're producing and selling is part of your emissions or not and then or would it be somebody else's emissions Mm -hmm. and how you like again these are big political questions that have to be asked and answered because we need to understand how we're measuring these things Mm -hmm. and then i mean you have obviously you have organizations that shift some of their scopes around, right? So they say, oh, well, that's not really a scope one or scope two. That's scope three. That's somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. When it's like, well, no, like you could do something about this, right? You're just choosing not to. You're putting out scope three and you're not counting it. So then you're a you're a net zero company. Yeah. But it's like, oh, but you have all these, you know, you have hundreds of thousands of carbon emissions a year that you're not accounting for, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, but I mean, again, like I said, there is some, I think, task forces and committees looking at this. Um, looking at risks to the financial the financial system because of climate change, mm-hmm. I mean, those bring to light these issues. But I mean, it's a tough one, right? Yeah. Again, I don't think that having a metal straw versus you know a bunch of single use plastic ones is necessarily saving a lot because you have to think about the production process for that metal straw. Yeah. But it makes people feel better. I yeah. Guess, yeah. They're doing something, and I, I mean, it's it's a it's a tough one, right? Yeah,
0: and it's like you said, like the. Had that the onus is now on the person rather than the company. It's like, Oh, I feel right. that I should move to plastic stra- or to metal straws. I feel that I should move to reusable bags. I feel that I should bike more all this stuff. Right. But I think I, I was reading a book or listening to a podcast and it said that if everyone switched from driving a car to, uh, walking or bicycle or using a bike or whatever, Like it wouldn't actually be that many emissions that we're saving, you know. Like there's just so much more, and a lot of it is from these uh, companies. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean that gets it gets into that that measurement, that scope measurement, right? But it also that's the thing, right? Like I can say, you know, I bike everywhere, I save whatever a thousand pounds of car, a ton of carbon emissions every year, right? Mm -hmm. A literal a ton, like a thousand pounds. Um, and I save those carbon emissions because I don't really drive, Mm -hmm. but. That's not really making a dent in anything. I mean, it's great. It makes me feel great. Yeah. I feel fantastic when I go somewhere. My commute is fantastic. But is it really making a difference in the environment? Well, like a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it's inconsequential when you think about, oh, well, somebody drives in their car anyways. I mean, somebody else is buying a new car and there's another car on the road. Yeah. It really comes down to you have to change the systems, right? Yeah, exactly. So you exactly. have to get investments into, you know, placemaking in cities and all that kind of stuff to make sure, you know, you think about countries like you know um, Denmark or the Netherlands and, and how they've invested in, you know, cycling paths and yeah. walking paths. Like everybody lives closer. So there's less emissions, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody part, one of the things I love is I have a, um, a few friends that, you know, they're, you know, kind of local rural, rural kind of guys. And I say, like, oh yeah, ha ha ha. Like if you live in a big city like New York, while well, your, your car emissions are so much higher because, you know, whatever you got all this concrete and all that kind of stuff. Whereas like out in the, the country, you know, you got lots of green space and all that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, you know, you got green space, but, a carbon emissions for somebody in New York are probably a, a quarter, a, a half of what anybody else is because they don't really have to drive. Mm-hmm. You take the subway everywhere, you can walk everywhere because everywhere is close,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? So it's it, there's so much density, right? So it they play off of each other, and you can't really, you know, there's a lot of those strawman arguments, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think this kind of like kind of starts to get us on this path of how all of this affects public health and how what companies are doing can affect public health in in a positive way sometimes. And like, speaking of, uh, biking more, I mean, I live in Montreal and there's a lot of great biking paths in the area and the Bixie bike service, which is a company that was, uh, created is so many people choose to use that instead of even having their own bike. So now they're not buying a bike where they're supporting the companies that had to all the energy that had to go into to make that bike, but they're using these reusable bikes too. So I think that that's a really great aspect. But then you're talking about the plastic bags and the plastic bags here are so thick. I've never seen such thick plastic bags and I treat it <laughs> like every other plastic bag. But, uh, but yeah, but again, like having this e-bike service, this bike service is, is really beneficial. And then that improves public health, not even um, from like an emissions wise, but also like a personal um, yes. like physical activity point of view
1: absolutely and i mean the 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 bike shares are such a great example because they are i'm like they're really they are what car sharing and ride sharing companies should be yeah we're 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 um i guess proposed to be in that like well people are driving anyway so we'll just pick somebody else up and we'll always be utilizing our cars more efficiently mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff with you know carpooling we know that that didn't work out and it's just more cars on the road and everything like that mm-hmm. and it's more pollution and all that kind of stuff no matter what they tell us but bike sharing is really great because it's a really efficient example of resource use yeah. in the sense that you have say you have 20 bikes at one station 20 bikes at another station well those can be going all day long because people are going at different times mm-hmm. they're a lot smaller than cars to park they yeah. don't require. Really much fossil fuel energy, um, if at all. I mean, if they're e bikes in Ontario and Quebec, they're probably hydro powered, Mm -hmm. right? So, and then they're all this, they're being shared among different people. So, the resource use, they're being used so much of the time rather than, I mean, I think it's something like a motor vehicle, like a a car is used 2% of its life. So 98% of the time it's parked somewhere, it's a parking lot or a driveway or garage. It's used 2% of the time. So I think that's that's what rideshare companies try to say is, oh, well, we'll use these cars much more time, blah, 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 Mm blah. But the bike sharing and the scooter sharing and all that kind of stuff is much more efficient because not only does it use less energy, better for the environment, better for public health, but it's just like the resource use is so phenomenal. I mean, that's efficiency. That's what supply chain is all about. So Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's something I love to see. Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, I mean, just in general, I mean, there's there's so much going on and so much what businesses are doing and trying to do, I guess. Um, but there's also a lot of differences in what organizations and yeah. what these businesses are trying to do, right? So, I mean, large organizations have the money and have the ability to go to the bank and say, you know, we need, you know, $2 billion in, in bond funding mm-hmm. to go and invest in all these facilities and all that kind of stuff. Small organizations don't. Right. Yeah. And this this is something that I think, you know, small businesses, what I saw in my research and and I think a lot of people will understand is what they're trying to do right now, especially right now with supply chain disruptions, is they're trying to order more supplies. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is it's this is an interesting one. And it's. You know, you look at it and it's a lot of small organizations that are doing this and they're ordering more supplies to say, oh, we need to have, you know, X amount of extra supplies in. So if there's any disruptions, we're good for six months, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds great. When you need more of something, you buy more of it, you stock up. Yeah. You
0: think you're being like pretty efficient. Like now I won't have to buy this later. I'm doing a good
1: thing. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. But in supply chain, this leads to something called the bullwhip effect. And so- you know, I'll take you back to the beginning of the pandemic and this is, mm-hmm. you know, everybody will remember this. Everybody will have a good laugh at this, but it's, you know, what happened when everybody started buying toilet paper? <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody needed more toilet paper and then everybody else needed more toilet paper. And all of a sudden everybody needs 3000 rolls of toilet paper. For what reason? I have no idea, <laughs> but we needed it. It's, it's, it gets at our, our human anxieties, right? Of Oh, yeah. it's a necessity. We have to stock up on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: it was but so essentially funny. You see,
1: I right? just remember it's, it's being hilarious. like, "I
0: need it," you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, I was I was living in Calgary, and I'm like, "I actually need toilet paper. Yeah. Like, where do I find toilet paper right now? Like, I actually don't have any left yeah. in my house." So, <laughs> yeah, um, you're taking away anyways. from the
0: people that actually like really didn't exactly. have any toilet paper.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so essentially, you know, we have all these stores seeing this mad rush of people wanting nothing but three thousand rolls of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Our anxieties really get to us, I mean, in no small part. I know they don't like to rag on the media too much, but I mean, they do have, you know, a big part of this is they focus mm-hmm. a lot on this issue of people needing toilet paper. And so everybody got stressed and wanted more. And it's just, it's a, it's a circle, right? It's a process and it, it keeps going until something happens. and Everybody has 20,000 rolls of toilet paper, mm-hmm. but stores see this, they see how their demand for toilet paper went up, you know, 16 times last week. And they say to their suppliers, well, we need 16 times more toilet paper next shipment.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then their suppliers go to their manufacturers and say, you know, holy moly, our 10,000 stores each require 16, 000, 16 times more toilet paper. So we need, you know, we need at least 20 times order. Yeah. Make it 2 billion rolls of toilet paper next week, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Well, I mean, suddenly all collectively realize that we don't actually need this much toilet paper. Yeah. And, you know, all the stores six weeks later, like clockwork, <sighs> are having toilet paper sales with 20 pallets of toilet paper. Yeah, right? yeah. So that's that's kind of like that bull effect. Like, it's a small disruption at the store level, but then it, like, it bull So then it's a big disruption up to the, the distributor and the manufacturer level. Right. And it's – this is really – you know, small businesses try to do this. And they try to buy more supplies. But then if all small businesses try to do this, well, then it's just the bull effect. Mm-hmm. And it's not only that. So that's an issue. But I mean, just in general, I mean, small businesses can't really afford, I mean, they don't have the cash flow that these large organizations do to outlay that much money and say, we need, you know, 20,000 more boxes this week for the next six months or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's a big issue, right? And that's something that I think we'll be dealing a lot with in the future is that Small organizations just won't be able to compete, mm-hmm. and it's—I mean, we already see that a lot in a lot of industries with you know the competitive nature or the uncompetitive nature, I guess, with uh, monopolization of them. Mm-hmm. But it's really—you know—it'll—it'll it'll come to light with more and more disruptions, whether due to climate change or geopolitical shocks or whatever. You know, our supply chains are very vulnerable to disruptions. They can—they can absorb. They're very agile. They can be very agile at absorbing some shocks, mm-hmm. especially if like production is globally distributed. Like, I mean, think about oil disruptions, right? If you have say for example like canada for some reason can't ship anything you can't ship oil because you know there's a port disruption yeah well i mean there might be a little bit of a you know a bump in the oil price for the day but i mean oil comes from 30 different countries on yeah. earth right primarily a few bit major ones mm-hmm. but i mean our global system's going to absorb some of that shocks but then to add out to that if you start talking about like well then you have geopolitical stuff like russia in ukraine
2: mm-hmm. well
1: nobody's buying nobody in you know the the gold minority in the western world is buying oil from russia anymore so there is less resiliency on how to you know or what kind of oil we can use yeah there isn't necessarily the ability to shift to different countries because our refineries in certain areas in in, in canada i mean our refineries in western canada for oil are really good at refining the oil from western canada
2: the mm-hmm. refineries
1: in Eastern County and Eastern United States are really good for refining oil from Europe and the Middle East.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's it's a lot more difficult. There's a lot of processes that can't be necessarily um, shifted or interchanged with each other. Um, so there is, I mean, again, like, yeah, there's some solutions to reduce this bull-up effect that I'm talking about. But, you know, it's very difficult. It requires good relationships up and down the supply yeah. chain and time, money, and resources that a lot of these smaller organizations just don't have, mm-hmm. right?